evidently had unshakable faith in the ultimate triumph of right. Hello and welcome to the Royal Melbourne Hospital Education Series, the podcast that asks your bosses those questions that you were too afraid to ask. We then discuss a recent paper that questions our practice. Our aim is to educate you and simultaneously make you look super clever on the ward round. Today on the show, we get hot with sepsis in a special two-part episode. We'll be talking about two recent articles from the New England Journal of Medicine that investigate the assessment and management of sepsis, respectively. Joining us is Associate Professor Karen Thursky, Infectious Diseases Physician and Director of the NHMRC National Centre for Antimicrobial Stewardship, and also Dr. James Anstey, Intensive Care Physician, and I should also note that I'm currently sporting Dr. Anstey's very swish briefcase. Welcome to the two of you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to divide the episode into the assessment and management of sepsis. Let's start with a brief overview of the basics before we launch into the meatier questions. Dr. Anstey, can we begin with definitions of fever, sepsis, SIRS, and septic shock? Yes. Okay. So a definition of fever, this is something that I think most of us have numbers in our head, but it all depends very much on the context and the patient. So most of us have a temperature of somewhere around 38 degrees Celsius and above as fever, but I think that's just a ballpark number, and it depends very much on the patient, the time of day it's measured, the site it's measured at, and all these other factors that can influence what might be a normal and acceptable temperature for that patient. I think some things to remember is that there are patients in whom a temperature of 37.8 might be considered a febrile response, particularly in an elderly patient or a patient with perhaps immune deficit of some sort. A fever first thing in the morning is probably quite significant, so that needs to be taken into account as well. Your other question was a definition of sepsis. This is something that's, I think, being debated currently in the intensive care community because the definition that we've been working with since about 1992 is perhaps due for a bit of an overhaul. The traditional definition has been proven or probable infection combined with a SERS inflammatory response, so systemic inflammatory response syndrome. The SERS response in itself, this is a set of fairly arbitrary elevations in physiological parameters. So temperature greater than 38 degrees Celsius or less than 36 would be the first element. A heart rate greater than 90 beats per minute would be the second element. The third would be a respiratory rate greater than 20 per minute or arterial CO2 level less than 32 millimetres of mercury. And finally, a white cell count that's either elevated or low, so greater than 12,000 or less than 4,000 per cubic millimetre. And then the definition of septic shock. So septic shock is sepsis, so proven or probable infection, combined with a shock state. So the definition of shock in ICU is that of impaired tissue perfusion. And how we define that is in the studies, generally we talk of someone with hypotension and that's all very relative depending on the patient but most intensive care studies would look at a systolic less than 90 someone who has hypotension refractory to filling and how we define that's a bit hard because when to stop filling is a little bit of a difficult question but in a patient who's requiring more than a couple of liters of fluid over a couple of hours and still without maintaining an acceptable blood pressure we'd say is has refractory hypotension or someone who is already on noradrenaline to support their blood pressure. So those are the elements, but I think these definitions are all things that are required for entry into studies. They're criteria that often are fairly well-defined, but I think the clinician needs to demonstrate a little bit of reasoning in interpreting these ballpark figures, and they are somewhat arbitrary. 
Speaking of interpretation of those figures, uh, Associate Professor Thursky, do you think health professionals are good at recognising sepsis? If so, why or why not? Exactly the reasons we just talked about, the requirement that you understand a set of parameters and in the case of sepsis where they're required to understand that they need to meet at least two of those criteria as well as being suspected as having an infection, that combination. I think a point that many may not be aware of is that only 70% of patients with severe sepsis will have a fever. So not uncommonly we see the notes in, in the medical records, patient not febrile, will discuss with home unit in the morning, do not give antibiotics. This is not an uncommon scenario. The second point is the recognition that the single most important parameter is respiratory rate. So in studies of epidemiological studies of sepsis, 99% of patients will have an elevated respiratory rate. Now that is interesting because as you know, many of us don't have watches, we have iPhones, there aren't any clocks on the walls of the patient's rooms and when we've done studies of compliance with observation by nursing, the compliance with accurate respiratory rate can often be very poor and in one hospital it was around 18%. So when we're talking about recognition of sepsis, we need to understand that there are a whole lot of ducks that need to be in a row for the doctors, A, to be notified that the patient might be septic in the first place. It requires a whole of hospital approach, both nurses understanding the definition of sepsis and when to notify the medical staff that that patient needs early care. On the back of that, how do you think we can recognise sepsis earlier? And if so, what tests are available? And just out of interest with regards to the respiratory rate, is there a way to objectively quantify that at the bedside using a mechanical form of quantifying respiratory rate? I don't have any great answer to that, apart from a, a mobile phone app that's been developed by the NOSL, which they're implementing in developing countries to assist with respiratory rate measurement. So maybe we can go towards smarter technologies. On the question on how to recognise it earlier, I think I go back to that same issue about making sure that there are removal of all the structural and process barriers in the hospital to enable systems to support identifying patients with sepsis. Basically that means education, education of nurses, medical staff, pharmacists, all clinical carers to understand what are the definitions of sepsis then to put in place clinical guidelines or even pathways which support the communication process. So this is actually very important. You can have all those things in place, but if there are problems actually with medical staff overnight who have competing priorities, they need to understand that if a patient does or possibly have, has sepsis, then they need to review that patient within 30 minutes to commence the resuscitation process and early antibiotics, which is obviously fundamental. In terms of tests that are available for recognising sepsis earlier? So James touched on the issue of hypoperfusion, which is really the fundamental aspect of sepsis, which leads to organ impairment, cycling into septic shock and poor outcomes. So one of the tests which has been included in all the international sepsis bundles, we talk about a bundle approach because it talks about a, a series of measures that should be done for patients with sepsis, so that includes blood cultures before antibiotics, early antibiotic therapy, fluid resuscitation, regular observation, early referral to ICU. 
The one measure that has not been done particularly well, I think, is the measurement of lactate. So venous blood lactate done as part of the workup with the patient is quite important for assessing hyperperfusion. And we know that from the New South Wales sepsis kills data where they've analysed well over 3,000 patients, there is a group of patients who will be normotensive. They'll have a normal systolic blood pressure but have an elevated lactate. And in fact, patients with a lactate over two with a normal blood pressure have an inpatient mortality of around about 13%. So lactate is one of the measures of hyperperfusion I think is actually critical and should be included. Severe sepsis traditionally has had a cutoff of more than four millimoles per litre. And at least in the New South Wales sepsis skills program, they have brought down that range to two to four when you should consider fluid resuscitation. I'd chime in there and say that if you're unsure about how sick a patient is on the ward, doing a, an arterial or venous blood gas and sending that off will be a good surrogate for clinical judgment. So if you're unsure and the arterial blood gas is deranged, as in the CO2 is low because the patient's hyperventilating, you may not have noticed that clinically, or the lactate is elevated, as Karen was just saying, that really gives you a, a good idea. And sometimes we get patients who come to ICU and their pH is 7.1 and then you know, with a CO2 that's 20, 25, and, and a lactate's 10 or 15, and they've clearly been deteriorating for some period of time, and really that blood gas can give an early indicator to people who may not have detected it clinically. The other thing is we talk about blood pressure and septic shock and severe sepsis are really a vasodilatory problem. So often looking at that diastolic blood pressure, which falls in a patient who's vasodilated, that's a good sign as well. So we talk of a systolic blood pressure greater than 90 going to the trials, but really you can have someone who's very unwell with a bounding circulation of blood pressure of 100 on 30, 35, and that diastolic really is a sign of someone who's got a very vasodilated circulation. The other question, I guess, relates to what tests do we have available? And of course, we all are looking for that holy grail where we can do some bedside tests to help us to diagnose A, sepsis, and B, what the likely cause is. I always caution residents about assessing patients with SIRS because really SIRS on its own, only one third of patients will go on to have infection. It's easier if they've had pre-existing obvious source of infection, but many patients don't. They might just be post-surgical with SIRS. Now that group, I think it's very important for the clinical staff to consider other possibilities about why they might have SIRS. So you need to consider PEs, other issues at that same time. So don't sort of head down a tunnel if you're not sure. In terms of specific diagnostic tests, of course there is emerging literature about some tests like procalcitonin, for example. I guess the literature is still unclear about the role of these tests because sepsis itself is a complex inflammatory process. Different bugs cause different cytokine responses and a classic example would be to compare sepsis related to an, an E. coli versus a Klebsiella. Klebsiella is a thick-walled capsula organism which causes an extreme inflammatory response and the more attributable mortality to Klebsiella pneumonia septic shock is far higher than we would see with E. coli or even Pseudomonas. These, no one single test is ever going to really have the sufficient specificity or sensitivity, I think. So really we are talking about a, a process where we need to have clinical suspicion, 
undertake the gold standard test, which is a blood culture, of course, and then use other tests as they come along. I think we will be starting to see procalcitonin and these sort of biomarkers being used, but they're still not at the point where they can reliably rule in or rule out sepsis. One other thing I would add for the clinical examination, apart from these fairly vague SERS criteria with all the shortcomings that Karen just talked about is really assessing the windows of perfusion. And as one of one of my teachers taught me some years ago, if you're looking at someone's perfusion, there's a few windows we can look at. Obviously, some are easier to look at than others in terms of organ perfusion, but the brain, I think confusion is a sign that needs to be looked for. And I'm always frustrated by being told, oh, someone's Glasgow coma scale is... 14 or 15 because I think you know the Glasgow Coma Scale is not for that purpose. It wasn't designed for assessing patients' confusional state. I think in patients who have a good cognitive baseline, really subtle signs of mental impairment, not calculating things so fast, not being able to answer questions perhaps with the same speed as they might ordinarily, that's a sign that they're not perfusing their brain quite so well. And a young patient might have to be quite sick before that's obvious, but it's worthwhile asking them a few more probing questions. For example, I, I sometimes ask people as a screening test to spell their name backwards or say the months of the year backwards. You really want to look for some signs of cognitive impairment, which is very non-specific, but that's a sign the brain may not be well perfused. In terms of other signs of organ under-perfusion under or hypoperfusion, I think putting in a urinary catheter is important in patients in whom you're wondering if their blood pressure is adequate. Often patients are going to renal failure and it's not detected till the following day and having that IDC in early and recognising that oliguria early allows them to be moved to intensive care if they are really in a shock state that hasn't been recognised. So an IDC, sequential neurological exams, sequential lactates, these are important things in patients who you're worried about. And if they're obviously that worrying, they should be referred to ICU or HDU for our input. One more question, Karen, about C-reactive protein. Do we hang our hat too much on it on the ward as a lab test to look at sepsis? As an infectious diseases physician, we use CRP a lot, more in terms of serial measurements over time. So I don't think it's particularly helpful in the very first instance, although clearly if you've had someone who's been an inpatient for a while who has had a suspected intra-abdominal process or pneumonia, and they start off with a very high CRP, over 200, well, I think that would lean you to think that there was an underlying bacterial cause. Same with procalcitonin. Increasing levels of procalcitonin are more and more associated with bacterial causes of sepsis. So, in fact, there have been some studies that have used a combination of the two, the CRP and procalcitonin. They have slightly different time kinetics as to when they go up and when they go down. So... I think it, it is important but not essential. The essential thing is that we need to assess for hyperperfusion both clinically and I echo again James's point about altered conscious state. I think this is absolutely fundamental and it's one of those things about clinical acumen that the residents really need to learn. If a patient is not quite right, why is that? I think it's absolutely essential. Touch the patient. Are they cool? Are they vasodilated? And then blood cultures. Now, Specifically, we do say two sets of blood cultures. And the reason we say two sets of blood cultures is simply because the more volume of blood you get, the more likely you're going to have a positive blood culture simply because of pickup rate. And they are the core tests. 
I want to move on to discussing risk factors for the development of sepsis. And firstly, asking each of you, what do you consider to be the single most important risk factor in a patient leading into a septic episode? So I would say that when we talk of someone's risk of deteriorating, we talk about the bug and the mug sometimes. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. And I think as a general rule, probably the patient factors are particularly good at predicting how quickly they might decline as a as a rule. The neutropenic patient, the patient who's immunocompromised for some other reason, I think that's really a sign that, that they're at high risk of declining quickly. Those of us who've worked in the hospital for a while have all seen patients come in with neutropenic sepsis and potentially flame out within 12 to 24 hours. It's quite scary and very sad when it happens. So I think febrile neutropenia is an emergency. It needs to be recognised early. And But there's another group of patients with a normal neutrophil count out there, and there's more and more of them with all the patients who are on immunosuppressive drugs of different types nowadays who are also very immunocompromised. So I think there's those patient factors are important. The bug, well, we had a patient die in ICU from meningococcemia a couple of weeks ago, and that's a pretty uncommon event nowadays. And did this woman have a normal immune system? Probably not, but that combined with a very aggressive bug, this needs to be taken seriously. But the most important thing is looking at where the patient is at that point in time and getting them quickly resuscitated and the antibiotics in early, regardless of their own risk factors, particularly in those patients who are higher risk of declining quickly because of poor reserve and, uh, I suppose, a weakened immune system, those are the ones who need to be treated even more aggressively and more quickly. I echo James's comments. From my point of view, I think delayed recognition, delayed time to first dose antibiotics are the single greatest risk factor. So every hour delay in antibiotics in the patient with severe sepsis has an increased mortality of over 7%. When we look at literature around neutropenia versus non-neutropenia in cancer, it doesn't necessarily hold true that neutropenia patients do worse with sepsis, actually. On the subject of the neutropenic patient, what about the afebrile, tachycardic, sort of borderline hypotensive neutropenic patient? How common is that, Karen, and how much should we be worrying about it? With the neutropenia patients, we tend to think of grouping those patients who are hematological patients, those patients with leukaemia or stem cell transplant versus solid tumours. They tend to have a shorter-lived, higher nadir for neutropenia, the oncology patients. The haematology patients can have very profound neutropenia. And we have to compete with many other issues causing that exact same syndrome, particularly chemotherapy transfusion reactions and other complications of their tumour. But certainly they do absolutely get severe sepsis and if we manage them with all the principles that we've talked about, then those patients can do very well. And it may well be that because of their risk, particularly with profound neutropenia, the likelihood of bacteremia becomes increasingly higher and tend to be gram-negative bacteria, still E. coli, Klebsiella, Pseudomonas are the top three. The real issue is about rapid effective resuscitation and to get them up to ICU for vasopressors early. I want to move on to something, James, that I consider to be an under-recognised cause of immunoparesis, the, the diabetic patient. How important is an accurate understanding of their diabetic control in determining outcomes in sepsis? That's an interesting question because logically we know that, or we would assume that diabetic patients, with all their comorbidities and their relative degree of immunoparesis probably would do worse on an overall level. There's actually, when I've looked into this, there's not so much 
published specifically on this topic, although there's a fair bit in the intensive care literature with diabetics as subgroups. And I think we can say that especially those patients with poor control do have a degree of immunopresis. And to give you an example, we, we had a patient recently with an HbA1c of 13. He was a 50 or 60-year-old man, and he actually developed pulmonary mucor and died from this. And he obviously had a, a large degree of immunopresis associated with his very poor diabetic control. More subtle degrees of impaired control. It's hard to say that there's definite evidence that shows these patients do worse, although logically we would assume they do. Of more interest to us now in intensive care is how to treat the diabetic patient who comes in versus the non-diabetic when they're in our unit. And this has been looked into a couple of times over the last 10 or 15 years. The initial literature came from Belgium, from the Leuven study looking at tight glycemic control. And many people would know that 10 years ago, we were controlling sugars particularly tightly in unwell patients. And this was based on a study particularly looking at post-cardiac surgery patients, a lot of whom were receiving TPN. And the study initially, this study showed that very tight glycemic control, keeping the sugar around four to seven or eight, led to much improved outcomes. And that was the way we treated patients up until about 2009. In fact, this question was reconsidered and the NICE sugar study done in intensive care looked at this and we in fact found that tight sugar control led to increased mortality. So the current paradigm is to control sugars and keep them below 10 millimoles per litre in all intensive care patients. That's been what we've been doing for the last few years, but now the question is, should we treat diabetic patients with a different blood sugar uh, target from non-diabetic patients? And there's an emerging body of evidence that suggests we probably should, but that's still being evaluated. What I mean by that is, if someone doesn't have a background of diabetes and they have hyperglycemia as a stress response, should we be aiming still for less than 10 or not? We know that if you go for a run, your sugar goes up and might go up to 12 or 13. And lowering that sugar with insulin takes away that ability to have the energy to continue functioning. Lowering that sugar has made sense to us in the past, but I think lowering the sugar in the diabetic versus the non-diabetic and the exact targets are still being reconsidered. So I haven't answered your question exactly about the degree of immunopresis, but I suppose it's more a question of how we treat these patients once they come to the intensive care unit and to the hospital in general. I want to talk about another risk factor for developing severe sepsis, the elderly. Do you think, Karen, that we miss sepsis in the elderly? And alternatively, do you think we too readily point to infection as a cause of presentations to the emergency department in the elderly? I think the elderly are well known to present in a more subtle way with sepsis and we all have to deal with the elderly patient from the aged care nursing facility with query chest, query urine. I think there is an under-recognition of sepsis in that group. Yes, they get assessed and they get a little bit of fluid and they get their dose of keftriaxone, but in terms of drilling down to whether they are truly hyperperfused and require more aggressive fluid resuscitation, for example, I think is underdone. And I think once we have those processes in place, I think we'll find that we'll be detecting a lot, a lot more patients that have a sepsis syndrome. What I learned from geriatrics some years ago was it's uh, infection and constipation that cause most of the presentations. So I think doctors on the whole do do septic screens in elderly patients who come in. So I think it's well appreciated, but the subtlety of the signs, sometimes I think it makes evaluation harder. 
The other thing is occasionally, I think we're good at looking for chest sepsis, we're good at looking for urinary sepsis. I think occasionally we see intra-abdominal pathologies that are detected quite late, and they're always harder, I think, to pick in the confused elderly person. The localising signs are often not there. The abdominal signs are often a lot more subtle until the pathology is a lot more advanced. So remembering that intra-abdominal pathology can be present as well, I think that's important. The other point, I guess, is to recognise that we, if we look at etiology of sepsis and the cause, by far and away the most common two causes, which account for almost 50 to 60%, are actually pneumonia and urine, urine sepsis. So in terms of where your bang for your bucks are for looking for potential sources, yes, it's true. It is pneumonia and urinary sepsis. And again, as James said, to look at other subtle other possibilities in an elderly patient, particularly those that have poor mobility or come from nursing homes, to look carefully at the integument, the skin, pressure areas and other possible sources. And they may have more than one source, and that's the other issue. Karen, let's talk about some microbiology now. How important is a patient's previous microbiology when assessing their current state of sepsis? And what are some standout bugs to be aware of in the septic patient? Previous microbiology is important more in terms of knowing whether or not the patient has a multi-resistant pathogen because that alters what your empiric choice might be. Clearly in Australia at the moment we don't have a major issue with multi-resistant pathogens although we are seeing a rise of ESBLs which account for around about 7% of our E. coli's. One should contrast that with the situation being faced in Asia and in some parts of Europe where the rates of resistant gram negatives are approaching 60, 70, 80%, which really means that our sort of workhorse antibiotics like keftriaxone and propylacil and tazobactam are no longer options for empiric choice. And there is a well-known guideline developed by the Europeans where they've had to address this in their empiric treatment of neutropenic fever, where you need to know your hospital epidemiology before you develop your sepsis guideline. And they've actually recommended two approaches. One, where you are in an area with very high rates of resistance, where you start with a very broad spectrum. It may be colistin plus meropenem, followed by de-escalation strategy, versus an area where you have not a lot of resistance, and Scandinavia would be a good example, where you can actually start with perhaps an extended spectrum beta-lactamase and then follow an escalation strategy once you identify your pathogen. We should also remember that frequently we don't get a blood culture result. So yes, it's nice to get a positive blood culture, but it's not uncommon in pneumonia. And overall, I think you're probably looking at positive blood cultures in you know, 40 to 60% of sepsis, certainly not 100%. So prior microbiology, yes, helps to think about what you might alter in your empiric workup of a severely septic patient. And certainly here at the Royal Melbourne, we know about the issue in Vanae in our haematology patients where they've had to modify their empiric choice in a patient known to be colonised with the resistant enterococcus. In terms of standout bugs, I think gram negatives do account for just over 50%, followed by gram-positive cocci, particularly staph and enterococcus, although we don't have the rate of sepsis due to enterococcus that has been reported in, say, the US, where enterococcus is a very common cause. And then one should remember other pathogens like candida, particularly in complex surgical patients and in ICU, and even viruses like influenza can present with a sepsis-type syndrome. 
So empiric antibiotics, I think first and foremost, need to cover particularly the gram-negatives, but to remember to add in gram-positive cover, particularly for community-acquired sepsis where there's no obvious source, where you do need to consider pathogens like staph, meningococcus and group A strep where they're presenting with a sepsis syndrome of no obvious source versus the classic infection where there's a clear site. What are we using for rapid identification of offending pathogens given blood cultures take time and wound swabs take time to get back to us? Our current gold standard is the blood culture. We do have in place molecular uh, Molditoff technique where they still require that the blood culture has flagged and if the blood culture flags they can do a time of flight laser assisted spectrometry which will identify the pathogen and that can be done around about the 24-hour mark. So it does shorten time to identification of, a, of an isolate in terms of knowing what it is, but it doesn't give you the information about sensitivities. I want to move on to discussing our first paper. James, I want to discuss this paper with you. This is an article from the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Research Centre by Calcone et al. and was published in the April 23 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine this year. This article is entitled Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome Criteria in Defining Sepsis. Tell us, what were the authors investigating and who was the study population? This study used the Australian and New Zealand database, which is, I think, one of the great things about our intensive care here in that for a relatively small population, we've got an enormous amount of data that's beautifully collected and allow studies like this to be done. So this is actually a look at the data retrospectively from 2000 to 2013 for, in fact, all the patients who were admitted to 172 intensive care units, which would essentially cover most of the major ones. And this looked at the SIRS criteria. So it looked at patients who actually had proven severe sepsis or septic shock and went back and then said, how many of them actually met the definition of, or how many of them would have been detected using the SIRS criteria on day one of their admission? And one of the criticisms of the SIRS criteria, as we said before, is it's not particularly sensitive. It can be abnormal for many other reasons apart from infection. But the other question is, I should say it's not particularly specific, but this was looking particularly at the sensitivity of the SIRS criteria. So working backwards from sepsis and seeing how many patients did have that. And they found that of about 110,000 patients with infection and organ failure, there was a group of about 12% or thereabouts who were not actually SIRS positive on the first day. So you would say, well, there's two ways of looking at this. You could say the sensitivity is still pretty good for a bunch of criteria that were developed in 1992 fairly arbitrarily. That's a sensitivity of 88%. That's, that's fair. It depends on what you would accept as a sensitivity for any test and set of criteria. And I personally think around 90% is, is good. The other thing is that I think clinicians don't draw lines in the sand at any exact values. So the SERS criteria, I think, need to be interpreted with a bit of common sense. So if someone has a heart rate of 80 or 85, respirate of 24, and their temperature is 37.8, and they look unwell and they've got an elevated lactate, then that should be enough for someone to know they're unwell. But this is looking at the criteria quite strictly and saying, well, there's still a group of patients who are being missed using the SIRS criteria in themselves. The other interesting thing that they did in this study was to look at how patients did in terms of how many of the SIRS criteria they had. 
And what they found was there was a stepwise increase in the risk of mortality with more service criteria, but there wasn't actually a transition point where there was a sudden jump going from, say, one to two or two to three service criteria. So the authors questioned, well, why do we say two or more when we could have said one or more? Although that's a criticism that they've made, I personally think there is a point where you, if you want to use a set of criteria, you don't want them to be overly sensitive. And I think this is more of interest, not to the practicing clinician in whom I would implore common sense rather than a strict set of numbers in practicing, but it's probably still of some relevance in defining entry into trials. It, it also says, okay, it's not a perfect set of criteria, but I don't know any criteria that are perfect in any way. So I think this study is an impressive analysis of a large data set, and it does demonstrate a point. Does it mean we should get rid of the SERS criteria? No, I think they still have their place. I think recognising that an inflammatory state is present, that it may have a number of causes of which infection is one, is important. Where do you draw a line in the sand? Why a heart rate of 90? Why not 80? Why not 100? I think it's still arbitrary. And at the end of the day, the clinician needs some common sense. Karen, your feeling on this paper and how it should inform our practice? Do we implore common sense like James does, or should we be having criteria-directed approaches to the septic patient? We use diagnostic tests or screening criteria for many other things in medicine. And I think that the SERS criteria definitely have a role in sepsis simply because we need to provide structure for nursing and medical staff to follow some sort of protocol which I think will standardise that process. I think we always need to remember if we're looking at a diagnostic test that has a certain sensitivity or specificity, it is directly impacted by the pre-test likelihood. So what that means is in the flu season, if you do a rapid test for flu, it's much more likely to be positive than if you do it in the off-season. Similarly, if you apply a criteria like this for sepsis, it really depends on what that patient is, the mug and the bug, I guess, coming back to that. So yes, if it's a haematology patient, they've had recent chemotherapy and they have SERS criteria, then you're much more likely to have a diagnosis of sepsis. So I guess um, it's, it's combining the patient, the pretest likelihood of them having sepsis with the SERS criteria. This paper may not have been able to drill down into that element. There's one other element of this paper that I think will relate to what we're going to discuss afterwards, but I think it's quite impressive that on the whole, the mortality from severe sepsis in intensive care patients has improved dramatically over the last 14 years. So it was about 36%. Back in 2000, it's down to 18% or thereabouts nowadays in patients with that SERS response. And those without the SERS response, it's even better. So a mortality of 18% in severe sepsis, I think on the whole as a hospital system, we've come a long way. There's still further to go, but we, for a number of reasons, because of the way hospitals are designed, because of improved recognition of sepsis and perhaps better treatment algorithms, we probably are doing better. And this paper demonstrates that. Thanks for that, James. That's a fantastic segue into part two of our special two-part series on sepsis, where we'll come back and talk about management of the septic patient. Thank you, and we'll see you soon.